If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of John. We're going to resume our consideration of the sixth chapter today. We're going to begin with verse 48 and read through verse 59 of John chapter 6. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible today and invite you to join me in whichever version you have with you today. John chapter 6, beginning with verse 48. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. The 17th century saw an intellectual and philosophical revolution on the continent of Europe. It was highly concentrated in the nation of France, but it was not limited to France. Names like Descartes, Rousseau, Voltaire, Frenchmen, who were part of this revolution. It was a revolution of ideas. It was described in retrospect as an age of enlightenment. It was an age of man coming to maturity. Man was finally free from the shackles of the dark ages, which would include the idea that there is a God, and that God is the one to whom we are to look for everything in our lives. These leaders of the Enlightenment were men who sought to answer the questions that every thinking person asks. Who am I? Where am I going? And where did I come from? Well, let me read a portion of a response to the Enlightenment by a Christian thinker. His name is William Lane Craig. And this is what he writes. The answers that came back to these questions were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. The answer to the question, who am I, was given in this way. You are accidental byproduct of nature. A result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. That's rather morbid, isn't it? 
if we were to fast forward to the 20th century, we would meet another couple of French philosophers. One by the name of Camus, the other Sartre. Camus did not see himself primarily as a philosopher. He was a journalist, but in his journalistic quest, he asked some very deep questions. You see, he was the product of the philosophers that I mentioned earlier and those in between him. And he developed, or at least adhered to, a type of philosophy known as absurdism. Perhaps you're familiar with the Greek mythological figure Sisyphus. Sisyphus had the inauspicious responsibility of day in, day out, all day, all the time, taking a large boulder and rolling rolling it uphill to the top of a mountain, only when having arrived there to turn away, to go back down to the bottom, and the boulder rolled down again. And incessantly, he did this over and over again. Camus said he represented, in effect, mankind. We have within us, all of us, at some point in our lives, we have this strong urge to know what our meaning is. Why are we here? Is there any purpose to my life? And we are compelled by that, but this life does not provide any sort of insight into that. Rather than commit suicide, Camus said, we just get our incentive from the internal drive to try to figure out who we are. Isn't that sad? The Word of God, I might interject at this point, says, God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Sartre was an existentialist, a nihilist, basically said life is nothing, is really what he said. And one of his plays, which he wrote, was entitled No Exit. And the plot surrounds three people who have left this world and they're locked forever in a room together. And one of the lines which is uttered by one of those individuals is, hell is other people. Well, that's a high view of relationships, isn't it? But a nihilist sometimes has that kind of view. Now, this new age of enlightenment in the 17th century was not anything new at all, actually. We could go back to the time of Jeremiah again. I mentioned him just a moment ago. And God speaks through him and he says, My people have committed two evils. He's talking about Israel, the people of God. They have committed two evils. The first is that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first evil. They had turned their backs on the living God. And then he went on to describe the second evil. The second evil was this. That they have dug out cisterns for themselves. You know what a cistern is? It's a hole or uh, something that has been dug out in the ground or in the rock. So when it rains in that dry Middle Eastern climate, those cisterns were holes that would contain the rainwater and be useful in times of drought. They have dug out cisterns from themselves, and they are broken cisterns that hold no water. What God was saying is, not only have they forsaken me, but 
the byproduct of their having forsaken me is that they've tried to figure out the meaning of life itself absent of me. And the consequence of that is they have hewn out, is the word, hewn out, dug out cisterns which are broken. And when they try to put water in it, they find that the water leaks out because the container is inadequate. And this is a picture of the time of Jeremiah in the 6th, 7th centuries B.C. It was true then. It's not new to that era also. You go back to the time of the judges. And the Bible says there was no king in Israel. And so every man did what was right in his own eyes. Man came of age during the time of the judges of Israel. He did his own thing. And you can go back to the Garden of Eden. That's where it really started. We come by it naturally because we are descendants, all of us, of Adam. And Adam thought he knew better than God. And he disobeyed God. And he nudged God off of the center of his life. And he marginalized God. That's what the Enlightenment did. That's what postmodernism does. That's what we all are bent on doing. Do you know... It's interesting, no matter how refined and developed a culture is, I don't care which one it is, men and women act the same way, left to themselves, absent of God, because we're self-centered. And it's something that is very, very sad. Let me return to what Dr. William Lane Craig wrote. He said, modern man thought that when he had gotten rid of God, he had freed himself from all that repressed and stifled him. Instead, he discovered that in killing God, he had also killed himself. For if there is no God, then man's life becomes absurd. Because the human race will eventually cease to exist, it makes no ultimate difference whatever it did whether it did ever exist. Mankind is thus no more significant than a swarm of mosquitoes or a barnyard of pigs, for their end is all the same. The same blind cosmic process that coughed them up in the first place will eventually swallow them again. Now that's a critique from a Christian point of view, a Christian worldview, of enlightenment. Now, does God want us to be enlightened? Does God want you to use your mind? Well, of course He does. He does. We're to love the Lord our God with all our minds. And one of the deficiencies in the church of Jesus Christ in America today is we have sold ourselves short for experience over against using the minds that God has given us to be men and women who have His thoughts embedded in our hearts It does not come by osmosis. You can't put your Bible under your pillow and expect all the information that's in there to just soak in overnight. It takes study. But study in and of itself is not enough. We have to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit of God. And we trust the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures to be our teacher. We come before Him and humble ourselves before Him. I love what J.B. Lightfoot, one of the greatest New Testament scholars of all time, wrote. 
in the flyleaf of his Greek New Testament. He said, when it's all said and done, no man, and this was a brilliant scholar, no man can understand the New Testament except by prayer. Dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit who inspired the Word enlightens us. This is why the Apostle Paul prayed, as is recorded in the book of Ephesians, why he prayed, Lord, enlighten the eyes of their hearts. This should be our heart cry. And the good news is, the Lord answers such prayers. He is our teacher. He does reveal those things which we need to know. So don't mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not trying to convey an anti-intellectualism here today, by no means. But what we do need to remember is knowledge puffs up. Knowledge is important. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, is what the Bible says. And the beginning of wisdom is too. People can be knowledgeable and not be wise. And people can be rather average in intelligence, or maybe even below whatever average is. I don't know how you calculate those things. But if you are a person who pursues God, and you come to the Word of God, you put Christ first in your life, then He will reveal things to you, and you will be a person of wisdom, not for your own sake, but for the glory of God and the sake of other people. Well, Jesus came on the scene during the Enlightenment. The 17th century was a time which produced people like Jonathan Edwards. You ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? He was considered at the time of his life. He died what we might consider a premature death in his 50s. He died of smallpox. He was just beginning to be the president of what we now know as Princeton University. He was considered the greatest intellect on the continent of North America by Europeans. He came through the Enlightenment period. He was not the only one. God used him in a mighty way to be a catalyst for a great awakening in the colonies. And literally thousands of people came to faith. And he was part of God's plan for that. In England, there were the Wesley brothers, John and Charles. We sing some of their songs. Both of them have songs in our hymn book. There are great things which these men taught. They were used mightily of the Spirit of God. And a revival occurred at the same time the Enlightenment was gaining steam. On the continent, there was a revolution in France which really has not been undone in any way of the Enlightenment. Britain was on the brink of the same kind of jettisoning, jettisoning of God, just throwing Him out when the Spirit of God moved through the ministry of the Wesleys and a man named George Whitfield, who also preached the gospel here in the United States. So please understand, Jesus shows up. Not always, but He shows up. And in this case that we're looking at today, Jesus showed up. And he describes himself by saying, I am the bread of life. What we've learned that Jesus means by that is, I am the one who supplies life. Bread supplies life, doesn't it? Bread sustains life. Bread also satisfies us. Yesterday I went to Subway 
And as I was waiting in line, waiting my turn, I knew what the young lady was going to say to me who was helping me. The first thing she was going to say to me after she discovered I wanted a sandwich was this. What kind of bread do you want? I did not have any debate. I've tasted all of those breads. And the one I want every time is Italian herbs and cheese. Never mind that the oat bread is more healthy for me. I don't worry about I want to be satisfied when I eat. Do you? I don't merely eat for nourishment. I eat for flavor, too. And the good news is that the Lord brings a lot of zest into our lives. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's beyond good. He is perfect. I think of what Jeremiah said. He said, your word I did find, and I ate it, and I delighted in it. If you haven't had that experience, what's keeping you from it? Perhaps it's that you have not had the eyes of your heart enlightened yet. Or maybe you're just too undisciplined to sit down and read the Word of God. And when you taste it, it will make all other pursuits very bland, if not bitter. Because you will be encountering the living God speaking to you through the Word of God. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Here's what He literally was saying. This is a better if I may say so myself, interpretation. I, I only am the bread of life. There is no other place that you can go, nor can I go, to find that which supplies life, sustains life, and satisfies life, than to go to Jesus, the bread of life. Now I'm going to stop here just a moment and note that Jesus is using what we call a metaphor. It's a figure of speech, which the reader looks at. It's not as easy as a direct comparison called a simile in writings, but it's pretty clear. And it's interesting that the response of the Jews that we're going to see here in just a moment is the response that was made by Nicodemus, one of the leaders of Israel. Do you remember he came to Jesus by night? And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And then do you remember what Nicodemus said? He was an older man. He said, A man cannot enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Here was this teacher of Israel. Jesus didn't simply call him a teacher. He actually describes Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. And he was thinking that Jesus was talking about something literal when he was talking about the necessity of being a man who is born again related to going back into your mother's womb and being born a second time. Or in the next chapter, in John chapter 4, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he basically says to her, if you knew the gift of God and the one who is speaking to you, you would ask him and he would give you living water. And then what did she say in reply? 
she said, Lord, the well is deep and you don't have anything to draw water up with. Where are you going to get the living water? She was thinking about something liquid. He was thinking about something spiritual. And so we see in the case of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, they were thinking concretely. They were thinking about material things. And in this case, we're going to see how Jesus is speaking metaphorically when he describes himself as the bread of life. And Jesus speaks this way later in the gospel, doesn't he? For instance, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He speaks metaphorically. It's a figure of speech to make a point. He repeats himself saying the same thing in John 9, 5. In chapter 10, twice he says, I am the door. Was Jesus hinged to a doorpost? No. He was saying, I am an entry point into eternal life. He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And that was easier to grasp. There was... Not any confusion about that, probably, when Jesus said that, unless the people got angry, thinking he was identifying himself as God based on the 23rd Psalm. And they would have been right. He was saying that about himself. I could go on referring to other times, but the point, I hope, is clear. Jesus is speaking by way of a figure of speech here, when he says, I'm the bread of life. Verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Let me pause just a moment. Do you remember manna? You know what manna meant? It really was Hebrew for what is it? They'd never seen it before. These small, cylindrical, flaky looking things would show up every morning and they look like dew on the ground. And God said, every morning, what I want you to do, you go and collect enough manna for yourself, just for yourself. Every person in the camp goes and collects what's enough for that person, for that day. On Friday, you do double because the Sabbath is holy. You cannot work on the Sabbath. To gather food on the Sabbath is work. You would violate that and you would be in jeopardy if you were to violate it. So take double on that day. It was a miracle. For the entire 40-year period of time, basically, every morning when they awoke, they didn't have to wonder what was on the menu. It was manna. And they complained about that. Wow, we're like them, aren't we, Lot? We complain and complain. No gratitude for the provision of God. But this manna, it was a miracle, no doubt. And it did supply the physical needs of the people. Jesus is talking about something that is more important, really, than physical provision. We have to have physical provision so that we can go forward in our walk with God. Spiritually, of course, Jesus, when he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was not saying that you're not supposed to eat. Because if you don't eat, you don't live, eventually. You can't go on indefinitely. But he's saying... Spiritual food is more important to your sustenance in the long term. Verse 50, this is the bread which came down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And now we look at the declaration of Jesus in the main text for the day in verse 51. I am the living bread 
It's another way of saying I'm the bread of life. Two ways of saying the identical thing. That came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now notice that Jesus is not limiting himself just to descendants of Abraham here, is he? He's saying, anybody in the world, I shall give my life for the world. And the interesting thing is that Jesus is indiscriminate. He doesn't limit his salvation to a sect of people or to a language group or to a race of people or to one gender. He offers his life to all of us so that we can really live. Consider the parallels between eating physical food and making spiritual truths our own. The first that I would mention is if food is not eaten, it is useless. It's the same with spiritual truth. If spiritual truth is not internalized by us, it does us absolutely no good. I read about a Scotsman in the pre-air travel days when people would cross the Atlantic from Scotland. This man had saved his money. He wanted to come to the United States. I do not know why he was wanting to come, probably to visit some friend or some family member. He was typically a Scotsman. He was very frugal. And so, as he prepared for his trip, he bought the fare, round trip from Manhattan back to Scotland. And he also decided, I'm going to carry my own food. I'm going to save some money so I'll have more to do with when I get there. So he took some crackers and he took some cheese. This was the day before preservatives, I might add. Have you ever noticed how long you can keep a loaf of bread? I mean, I've seen a loaf of bread last uh, three or four months without getting moldy. Unbelievable. I don't know what that's about, but it's, it's pretty interesting. And, and then he also took some fruit. And it, as he traveled across by water, the sea air kind of made the crackers not so fresh. They got stale near the end of the journey. And a mold began to develop on the cheese and the fruit began to spoil. So he thought the last day, he knew he was nearing Manhattan, and he thought the last day, I'm going to go in and I'm going to eat a sumptuous meal. I think I owe that to myself in the dining hall. So he goes in, and when he gets there with money in hand, ready to pay for the meal, what the lady says is this, Sir, when you bought your fare on the ticket, you got free meals all the way through. Don't you know he kicked himself when he thought about that? Well, that's the way many of us are. We've not eaten the food of the Word of God, not realizing it's for us. It's got your name on it, if you're a child of God particularly. Here's another parallel. Eating food is prompted by hunger. The full are not interested. Some of you here are not interested in spiritual food. You're just sort of tolerating this time. You're looking at your watch. I'm not saying who you are. I don't even know. I don't want to. (laughs) And 
you're not hungry. But when God really begins to work in a person's life, do you remember those of you who know Jesus? What your life was before you came to know Him? And how the Spirit of God began to work in your heart, create and stir hunger? If you're an adult, and you came to Christ as an adult, probably it was by way of some sort of crisis in your life. Probably. Not always. But suffice it to say, it would have been due to a longing in your heart that was building for something more. All the relationships you've had and are no longer in play. All those things, they did not bring you final solution to the problem of emptiness in your heart. All the money you could make. All the accomplishments in your work. None of that filled you. And you know why? Because you were created to be indwelled by the living God. And there's a hole in your heart until you give Him rulership in your life. That's why Jesus says, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. We are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. A third analogy between physical food and spiritual food. Food eaten becomes part of the eater through the digestive system. When I eat the Word of God, like Jeremiah did, and we're told how to do that. Joshua is told by God. God says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Do you know what it means to meditate? It means to munch. That's really what it means. Do any of you munch on the Word of God? Some of you are two-fisted eaters of physical food. But do yourself a favor and ruminate, graze on the Word of God. Go over it and over it and over it. And see what God does to nourish you and to give you His life. Many people admire Christ and His teachings. They cry, some of them do, at the thought of the brutality of the cross of Christ, what He suffered on the cross. But if they do not receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, trusting in Him completely and only for their salvation, they will never become one with Christ. A fourth comparison. Eating food involves trust. You have to have faith to eat food, don't you? Sure you do. When I was a boy, I thoroughly enjoyed going to one particular restaurant it was not even enclosed. It was sort of an outdoor kind of environment. It had an awning over and we would sit on a counter and we'd order our food. And one day I noticed on the wall, I don't know how old I was, probably nine or ten years old, and I turned to Mother and I said, Mother, what is that big D on the wall? And she said, Mike, that D represents the grade that the public health department has given this restaurant. <laughs> Whoa. It didn't stop me from eating there. It's still my favorite place. That was ill-advised on my part. But we, we have to have faith in the Word of God. And by the way, interestingly enough, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's kind of interesting that the way we develop faith is to read the Word of God. And some people say it's just brainwashing. Well, 
I'd have to agree with people to a certain degree on that. Because my brain is dirty in a lot of ways. I'm not just talking about old man kind of dirty. I'm talking about just dirty. It's full of wrong-headed ideas. And God's Word is that compass which God uses to help us to follow Him. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Eating is personal. Nobody can eat the bread of life for you. Your wife may be a believer. Well, praise the Lord for that, but she's not getting you into heaven. Your father may be, your child may be, your brother may be, you name it. Somebody you know and you're close to may know Jesus. They know Him as the bread of life, but you've got to have your own faith. The dilemma of the Jews in verse 52, look at it. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh teeth? They knew what we read from Leviticus 17 about the life is in the blood. They knew that it was off limits for them to eat meat with blood in it. And they knew the whole idea of cannibalism is what they were thinking Jesus was saying was completely outlandish and totally out of bounds. So much so that God doesn't even speak about cannibalizing being a sin. It's inherently knowledgeable to us, even if you're not a Christian. So, we understand this. There are people who believe that the Lord's Supper we're going to observe in just about eight or ten minutes. They believe the Lord's Supper, with the right words administered to the cup and to the bread, literally becomes the body and the blood of Christ. Well, let me give you some reasons why I would disagree with this. First of all, the Lord's Supper had not even been instituted at this time. Months separated this event and the institution of the Lord's Supper. Secondly, why would Jesus speak of His Supper to disagreeable unbelievers? These people were antagonistic toward the Lord. They had no clue. No, it had no relevance to them at that time. The third reason. That the way Christ speaks about this living bread in verse 51 he says that came down out of heaven, if anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. It's the key to eternal life, is what he's saying. And so, it's absolutely necessary. Therefore, if this is a sacrament, something that conveys grace to you, all who have never shared in it are going to hell. That's what it says. And we know people like the thief on the cross. These are exceptions. But... It's true of people who come to Christ and sometimes they die before they can have communion. Do you think God's going to kick them out of heaven because of that if they have received the gift of eternal life and trusted Christ? I don't think so. Fourthly, the word which Jesus uses here is the word for flesh. Sarks is the word, the way it sounds in the original language. When we go to Matthew 26.26, or Mark 14.22, or Luke 22.19, or 1 Corinthians 11.24, where the words of Jesus are recorded, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In each instance, the word sarks is not used. It's the word body 
And that in itself would indicate that Jesus is talking about two different things here. The tense of the verbs in chapter 6, verse 51 and 53, are what are called aorist tense verbs. Now, hang with me. I know it's been a while since we started. What that simply means, it's a precise way of saying something happened once in the past, never to be repeated again. That's what that means. And so, the eating of the bread is a one-time event. And people who believe that communion is a means of grace or the maintenance of grace to them in terms of securing their salvation... It's impossible based on the language which Jesus used. It's a one-time deal. So he's talking about believing is what he's talking about. Let's read a little further here. Verse 53, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. And then he says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the fourth time Jesus has made reference in this section about I will raise him up on the last day. Now, let's go to verse 40. We looked at this last Sunday. Let's review it and see the connection between what he says in verse 40 and what he says here in verse 54. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let's read 54 one more time. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Do you see the parallel between these? And I will raise him up on the last day. What Jesus is saying figuratively, metaphorically, in verse 54, he has said specifically and more concretely in verse 40. It's the same to behold the Son, to see Christ in our hearts, and to believe in Him, as what is said by Jesus when He says, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. There's only one way to eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever does what? Believes in Him has eternal life. This is the way to eternal life. St. Augustine a man who was recognized and still is within Roman Catholicism for centuries as the go-to guy. You could not be a good student of Christianity if you did not study Augustine. St. Augustine, in his commentary on this section, in what we would call a commentary on John, says three words in Latin. Crede et... Mansukati. What does that mean? It means eat and you have believed, is what he's saying. That was his interpretation. That's the right interpretation. When we eat the elements, we are showing our faith that Jesus is the bread of life. And we're trusting in Christ this whole matter. We're trusting in Jesus. And the elements are representative of the body and blood of Jesus. Well, I'm going to stop there, but close with a couple of observations. The first of which is, to know Christ is life. This is what Jesus says in John 17, 3, where he says, this is eternal life, that they may know 
you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Knowing Christ, believing in Christ, eating the bread of life. That's how we know God. That's how we know Jesus Christ. And to refuse or reject Christ is spiritual suicide. So, please, choose Christ today. Let's pray as the men come to distribute the elements. Lord, we know that the Lord's Supper is extremely important. You've given it to us as a reminder of who you are and what you have done for us and what you continue to do for us. And we're asking now, Lord, that we would take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.